Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. Well, welcome lovers of product. Today I am here with Mara Segete. Mara, why don't you start off by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I originally come from Romania and I came to the States with a full scholarship for college and worked as a software developer, then ended up going to Stanford. And I, I took classes in something called a design school where I kind of got a taste for building products, starting things from scratch, and I became really passionate with this idea that one day I wanted to start a company. Uh, years later, I ended up starting uh, a few different companies with the same co-founders. I first built a mobile app, and that mobile app did pretty well, was featured in the app stores, worked on it for about a year, ended up selling it. And then we built Branch, which is a mobile linking and attribution platform. So we built Branch to solve all the problems that we had growing and building great products as app developers. And it's kind of taken off and it's been like a really crazy ride helping app developers and, and mobile brands grow around the world. So tell me a little bit more about the story behind Branch. <laughs> you know, it sounds very similar to what I'm doing today where you're solving your own problems, right? Let's yeah, pretty much. So um, we, were, we had this photo book printing app called Print Kindred. And it was great. We were uh, allowing you to take photos from Instagram and your phone and Facebook and put them on this little booklet that we printed and shipped to you. And we found that it was actually really complicated to grow. And, and, and the reason was it was hard to build virality features because with mobile, when an app opened, you didn't actually know where someone came from. So you couldn't customize and give them the proper experience like you can on the web. So I had this problem. I was running ads to two different groups of people that were like our core customers. One was moms and the other group was teenagers in long distance relationships. And these two groups behaved incredibly different in the app. Moms were likely to buy 10 books at a time. Teenagers were cheap, but they were very likely to share. So I had this idea that I wanted to give them a different experience. I wanted moms to prompt them to buy multiple books, while I wanted teenagers to actually get free books if they shared the app with their friends. And I realized that there was no way when the app opened to know which campaign the person came from. So there was no way for me to know if they were a mom or a teenager, although I was running very different campaigns and acquiring them in different places. But that ability to pass you know, the parameters that you came from a link into the app was not there. And it was incredibly frustrating. I kept like messaging people from Facebook. I was going for people at much larger company and asking them, how do you do this? And they were telling me, yeah, there isn't really an issue, a solution. Uh, at Zynga, for example, they were grow. They grew so much on Facebook because of all the virality features that they built. This ability to, if I invite you and you come from my link, you get some free gems. I get some free gems. Everyone's happy. And because you couldn't track that, they actually, that's one of the reasons the virality that Zynga had on Facebook was not the same on mobile. So we realized that this was not just our problem, but actually an industry problem and decided to build branch 
And at the core of branch, we were building these links that allowed you to understand where someone came from and take them to the thing they were looking for, customize the experience for them. And then we built all this other growth feature on top of it, basically all the things that we wanted when we had the app. So tell me a little bit more about helping companies drive growth in the mobile space. What advice do you give them? How do you help them? So it's really interesting. I think when, when people think about mobile, they think about just apps. And apps are still really, it's really hard to acquire customers. So my advice when I think about driving growth on mobile is to actually have a cross-platform approach, meaning think about web and app as one and think about when is the right time to take someone to a mobile website and when is the right time to actually bring them into the app. Getting someone to download the app is actually, in my opinion, a pretty intimate connection that you build to the user. And the numbers are really great, right? Like if you look at users who are using your app versus your mobile website, they convert twice as well, they retain much longer, their retention over 30 days is almost 4x the retention of web users. So it's, it's, it's really great, you know? The thing is, it's actually hard to get users and it's a lot more expensive to get them to download the app. So the way I like to think about it is actually a little bit like dating. Think about your users in the context of their mobile journey like dating. And the app is kind of like getting in a committed relationship. And you shouldn't ask someone to get in a committed relationship when you first met them. So my, my advice in general is to start users and start their journey on the web, give them some information about your product, get them warmed up, and then use banners, emails, and things to get them to download the app a little bit later once they've already kind of gotten a little uh, feel for your brand. And that's not, I mean, if you look at right now, how people think about mobile, it's actually quite different. A lot of people spent a lot of money on install ads and buy users directly into the app. What we've looked, when we've looked at our data, those install ads versus people who actually come from your mobile banners and your own website, their retention rate over 30 days is actually only a quarter. So it's much harder to retain people that you bring to get an app installed in the first place. Hmm. That's very interesting. What else do product leaders tend to get wrong in mobile? I think the other thing is they silo really the, the they, they silo the web and the app. But both in terms of experience, measurement, they look at, and I've talked to many companies to do this. They have a web team and the web team thinks about acquiring, engaging users on the web. Then they have an app team and the app team thinks about, you know, the app in, in, as, as its own little kingdom. And the problem with that is a user in general, most users today actually have a pretty complicated journey. They might start on a website, they might download the app, they might go back to your website, they might go back on a website of Facebook in the Facebook browser and then the LinkedIn browser. So the interaction that the user has with your brand on mobile is usually includes multiple devices, includes web and app. So thinking about web differently than the app and just looking at the journey only on the web and only in app, I think kind of limits your understanding of the whole journey of the user. And sometimes it might be actually be the same user that you think is two different users. So I think one of the biggest problems in mobile is not actually 
tying and thinking of a user across web app, multiple browsers as one person and one cohesive journey. Because I think when you start looking that way, you start understanding how you're spending your money a lot better. You start understanding how they're converting a lot better. So the biggest advice I would have is to actually build a persona and start understanding your entire user journey across multiple devices on platforms on mobile. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I mean, I think about my own experiences. I'll often start something on mobile because I'll get an idea and then I'd want to take it over and continue that interactions on the web, right? And I feel like I'm starting over in most cases. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's hard. We have solutions that help you with that, but it's not an easy problem to actually understand who a user is across multiple devices, desktop, uh, apps. So I think, you know, there is a reason why product leaders make those mistakes. We, we, we're building solutions to help them, but it hasn't been something that we just built overnight, right? It took us years to be able to build these solutions. Yeah, so talk to me about the other thing I always hear from product managers on, on mobile in particular, uh, and that's like them thinking about how to drive virality, right? What advice do you give people when they're thinking about making their application, you know, expand, have that network effect more through yeah. virality? You know, since, since Kindred, I've been a little bit obsessed with virality. And I think if you look me up online, most of my talks are around virality. I was really trying to get Kindred to be viral. Even at Branch, I built things to try to get people to share Branch. And the best book I read on virality is actually a book called Contagious by Jonah Berger. And I think one of the biggest mistakes people make today with virality is thinking that they can just drive virality by building a referral program. And referral programs can work and there's examples of them working. But I think what people don't see, they just see a referral program and then they don't see all the other work that goes around it. For example, you know, Uber had a referral program uh, at some point to, and, and you would advise someone, you'd get some percentage off. What people don't understand is Uber built a referral program in conjunction with building a ton of brand awareness and making their brand look cool and making, taking advantage of other virality practices. Like they build this idea that one of, one of the things that drives virality that Jonah talks in his book is this idea that people like to help others and like to feel that they are sharing and helping them with something cool. So when Uber worked so hard to actually build this amazing brand and people felt like Uber was this cool thing that maybe they just haven't tried yet, and if someone shared and gave them a credit, they were likely to try it out, but not just because they got $5 off, but because all the work that Uber had done to make Uber look cool. So I see a lot of small apps who come in and they copy the Uber referral model or the Dropbox referral model, and it doesn't work for them. And they wonder, wow, why doesn't this work? It worked for Uber, it worked for Dropbox. They don't understand that they're not putting in all the work that those brands did on brand awareness and making the brand look cool. I like to think about it almost like, you know, going up a very deep mountain and the referral is just like the top of the mountain, but you don't see all the other marketing and brand awareness that you do in advance. So, you know, the, the things that I like to think about, obviously incentives work, 
but the incentives are actually one of the, in my opinion, one of the lower um, triggers that drive virality. The two that I've seen work really well, and Jonah talks about in his book, are emotion and ego. And ego is something really interesting. Like people tend to share things that make them look cool and make their image, improve their image. So uh, if you can find a way to get your product to actually make someone feel like, well, if I share this, I'm going to look like I'm helping my friend. I'm going to look like I have status. I'm going to look like I'm really cool. That's the type of thing that actually gets someone to share a lot more than like, you know, 10% off or even $5. And the other one that he talks about is, you know, emotion. If, if some sort of content drives a, a specific type of emotion in you, and he says that there are seven types of arousing emotions. So it can't just be an emotion. It has to be one of the seven arousing emotions. Someone is a lot more likely to share than if there is no emotion or, or is a more, um, it's not an arousing emotion. So some of those arousing emo- emotions are, you know, um, surprise, joy, I think fear. And you can, you, you, and you can see how some of the viral things that go into doing the internet kind of fit those, right? Like a hundred things and now you won't believe numbers 40, right? You're more likely to click on that because it's something that drives the curiosity and surprise in you. So I think virality is something that's really complicated and really interesting. And the biggest advice I would have around virality is like, don't just build a referral program and think that that's going to, you know, just drive your virality. Think about all the other triggers and the psychology of a human that can drive them to both share something and click on something. So let's, let's dig into that a little more. I like this topic. What great examples have you seen of viral products that were driven by emotion or by ego could you take us yeah i have a few examples so i'll give you i'll give you two well actually i can give you even three one that i think was kind of brilliant was actually one of my classmates amanda uh, and she built uh, this company called the league it was there was one of they were one of our first customers and the league is a dating app that's uh, very exclusive so she uh, really built on the exclusivity. She did a ton of PR. She was in the Sunday version of the New York Times. There was a whole article about the league. And then she built something really interesting. She built a wait list for her app. And to get, in, to get into the app, there was a wait list and you, you had to be reviewed. But you could get higher in the wait list if you invited people and they installed the app and got on the wait list. So the more people you invited, the higher in the wait list you got. So that drove, you know, that utility drove a lot of invites. But what was really cool and actually what drove even more virality was this, the way she used like the ego. And it was basically once you got into her app, you got this ticket and that ticket got one of your friends on top of the waitlist, only one. After that, the link expired. And what was really interesting about that is people really shared those tickets. They really felt like they were like special and they were giving their friends access to the special app. And people started selling them on eBay. And it was like really interesting how much uh, virality those like special links drove probably even more than the virality of the waitlist itself. 
And the cool thing about it is because everyone only got one link, they would invite very good people and, and people who would actually be very likely to use the app because they only got one, right? So um, that worked incredibly well. The other one that was uh, kind of around surprise and curiosity was uh, a referral program that Robinhood built with us, so the uh, trading app. And they built something really interesting where if you invite a friend and if they install the app and start using it, you get a stock. And you don't know what the stock is going to be. So, and then they build this really cool one. When your friend actually installs, you get like a notification and you go on the screen and you have to like, almost like, it's like kind of like a scratcher and you see what the stock is. And, you know, in some cases it can be a very a small stock that's not worth that much money. But in other cases, I think I got like a Facebook stock and it was worth like $10 or something. Uh, and it was like so exciting. And the curiosity would drive you to install and get other people. The fact that you got something cool was awesome. And then, uh, you know, the surprise of that, that something really exciting happened got me to invite more people. So it was like a, a really cool viral loop. And they built this in the early days with Branch, but they still, it's still one of their big drivers of growth and one of the best referrals uh, that I've seen. I like that story. That has like the, almost like a slot machine effect too, right? You mm-hmm. know? not sure where you're going to get so there's the you're not sure exactly and you like want to be able to play more and the only way you can play more is if you invite more people and they install robin hood yeah i want my share of berkshire hathaway right you know exactly yeah it's really cool so now putting my pm hat back on you know talk to me about metrics that measure virality you know what metrics do you use what metrics do you tell other people to use does it depend on what you're building yeah, I mean, the regular metric that people use to uh, track virality is K-factor. And basically, it's how many, for every user that you have or that you acquire, how many new users do they bring? And that's a formula that you can find online to measure it. But basically, you're looking at, to actually have a viral product, you're looking at the K-factor of one or more, meaning that every new users that you generate brings you one or more new users and that user brings you more. So then you have a viral product because every user brings at least one more user. It's very hard to get a viral product out there. There's not that many where even if they do build virality early on to key factor of one or more can be incredibly hard. I still think it's important to, to measure your key factor. And even if your key factor is like 0.2, it's still really great because it means when you acquire a paid user, every paid for every paid user, you actually get 1.2 users because every user brings you know other users in. So for every five users you acquire, you get one organic one, right? Uh, so they can help you understand how you can um, the actual value of a user, and it's usually not just that user. If you have some an app that's slightly viral, uh, you actually get more than just the user you acquire. So I think it's something that's really great to measure and keep track of and actually take into account when you think about, you know, the ROI of your spend and things like that. So what's the best K factor you've seen and what did they do to drive it? I don't, I can't think of off the top of my head, but if you think of apps like uh, the really viral apps like Instagram and others, 
they definitely had the key factor higher than one, well, much higher than one in the early days. One really good one that I seen that they was they were, and they were using branch and that was uh, really high in their early days was this app called House Party. It's almost like a group chat app and you invite people and as soon as they, if they come from that invite link, they're actually joined into the chat with all the other friends and they can all chat together. And it, it's like inherently a viral app. You're talking to two friends and you decide to invite a third friend and now he has the app. The, the harder thing for them was actually getting people to start chats and engage. It wasn't actually user acquisition, it was engagement and getting people to come back and start these chats. And then that was, that's something that can be very hard with the very viral apps in the early days. You know, you can invite a lot of friends and they use your app at the beginning, but you know, getting them to come back, you, you can't just have a viral product. You also have to have a sticky product, right? So. Yeah. And that leads us to a good question, right? And, and that's about creating experiences that ensure and increase retention because it's one thing to acquire them, but if they're all dropping off after, you know, 30, 60, 90 days, then you're spending a lot of money on that acquisition phase and not getting the benefit out of it. So talk to me about, you know, what you see and what you advise people to do in creating those experiences that ensure that retention. Yeah, I think it's hard. It's inherently depends on the product. And if you have something that people actually need, they're very likely to come back. So I remember when I was in, um, in business school and I was taking a class on building products and someone came in and I'm sure you've heard this, this before, but they said that there are two types of products in the world. One is vitamins and one is painkillers. So when you have a painkiller, it's actually a lot easier to bring someone, to get someone to come back in because even from the very early days, they came in because they really needed something. So utilities come into this. Painkillers are harder because even even a product like Facebook or Instagram or maybe even a lot of e-commerce, they're more like vitamins, right? You don't really need them, but they do make your life better. So in those cases, you need to be incredibly creative. You need to figure out ways to, to bring someone in through retargeting to really interesting um, viral loops, right? There's uh, something that Josh Elman calls a double viral loop. Josh Elman is worse than Robin Hood, but he was a partner at Greylock. And I always, I've always loved this idea of the vir- double viral loop because and, and the, what the viral, double viral loop is, is if I invite a friend, to use an app or to buy something or um, to use a product. When the friend actually uses a product, you should send me a notification letting me know that they've done something. So if I invite someone to buy, you know, to a, a e-commerce platform or to Robinhood or something like that, if you let me know that my friend has just you know, bought some stock on Robinhood or bought a bunch of stuff on this e-commerce store. It makes me feel like I've been useful and I've done something really good. And I'm more likely to actually go into the app and open it and check out what they've done and then invite more people. So that's the double viral loop. It's not just the virality of me inviting someone and then engaging in the app, but the virality of actually them bringing me back into the app and me inviting more people. Uh, because of this emotion of like, I've done that. I feel that I've done something good. I've like really helped this other person. Um, Other things I've done, I've seen is 
trying to understand who your user is and their behavior and showing them things that actually they want. So the more you understand who your user is, if you can retarget them with products, with experiences that are the experience that they want, they are obviously a lot more likely to come back into the app. Even if you think about the example that we had earlier of house party, if you understand who all my friends are and you're telling me that 10 of my friends are, are now in a chat, I should join and go with my friends because they're already in a chat, I'm more likely to actually come back and engage than if you just tell me, hey, you should just start the chat with your friends. I might not be you know, the person that wants to start, but if I know something's going on, if I know that uh, I'm missing out on something, I'm more likely to go in and, and engage in the app. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely this fear of missing out. It's one of the, I mean, fear in general and the fear of missing out is one of the strongest emotions that I think can drive engagement and morality. Now, part of making this all work is experimenting, right? Figuring out what works, doing some A-B testing, maybe some other types of experimental testing. What advice do you give PMs or people building mobile products, products in general around experimentation and testing? I mean, I think it's incredibly important. Um, we have this at branch, one of our values is data-driven decisions. And the way I talk about that value is you can have hunches and you can test and build prototypes based on hunches or um, you know, seeing observation that you've seen in the, in the market. But when you make an actual decision on building a product or, or spending a lot of money on a campaign, you should always have data to back it up. And the only way you can have that data is if you test things. So I don't think like any big feature, any big change to your app, you should never be done because you uh, just like because you, you had a hunch or you, you've done like some usability testing and you've seen two users enjoy one flow versus another. You, a test should be built on that and then you should actually test it versus your current flow and make sure that you're not like losing people or you, you haven't like people don't react or interact with your app in a way that you might have not perceived in this new feature. So I think it's incredibly important that everything new that you build, you actually test against what you currently have and against other potential ways that you can go. Uh, I'll give you an example. One of the most interesting, uh, one of our products is actually these banners that allow people to go from a website to the app, but you can put banners on different pages. You can design them in different ways. And we have sometimes customers that have a hundred different versions of the banner that they're testing on different pages. And on every page, they test a banner on top, a banner on the, on the bottom, a banner that's like on the entire page. And, you know, like, and, and it's very important that you look at the whole journey and you don't look just at uh, one small metric. So an example in, in our banner case is when you look at just click-through rate, uh, the big banner that actually takes on the whole page has the highest click-through rate, much higher than um, obviously the smaller banners. And if you were to just look at that data of just a click-through rate, you would just put up giant banners on every page because they have the highest click-through rate. But when you look at the retention, when you look at the... Um, at the entire journey of a user, what the drop-off rate is, are they likely to come back to your website and things like that, you actually notice that that banner, why it has a very high click-through rate, 
overall, it has a lot more people who close it out and maybe never come back to your website or get annoyed to your website. So the amount of people that you lose with a banner like that is much higher than the amount of people you lose on pages with smaller banners. So it's not, while, while it works in some cases when a user is super engaged and they've already like gotten to understand your product, maybe they just bought something on the website, then you can show them a big banner to take them to the app. It's not something that you should show all the time. You should definitely not show them on the first time someone comes to your website. But I think the, the advice here, and what I'm trying to get to is A-B testing is really important, but actually knowing how to measure your A-B test and not looking at just one metric, but looking at the whole customer journey and understanding how this particular feature actually impacts your overall journey or overall retention is also something that's really important. You can't just look at like the click-to rate or like a metric just for that particular page or that particular feature. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point there, right? You have to look at metrics that are meaningful to your business, not just vanity metrics, because, you know, like clicks on a website or open rates on an email, or in this case, clicks on a giant banner might not be tied to the business metrics that are important to you and, and often aren't. So you can have this local optimization problem, right? Exactly, which I think is one of the big problems. It's like you build something and you optimize for that particular button and you make a giant button, but overall, while it looks like in that particular page, your click-through rate has increased or something like that, overall, you have a lot more people who get so annoyed with your product and never come back. And it can be detrimental to your business overall. Yeah, I, re I remember talking about uh, with another guest about monetization, right? Having a ton of like coupon-like offers or special deals that pop up right away was great for spiking your revenue, but it also led to a huge decrease in long-term retention. Yeah, he, exactly. He was talking about how like his competitors, when he saw him doing that, he knew their business was struggling, right? So exactly. It's, uh, it may be contraindicative, but uh, you have to drill all the way down into the, the metrics that matter to your business. That's right. So part of all of this, all of these things we're talking about, virality, experimentation, you know, a lot of it comes down to building this community of advocates to around your product, right? These long-term advocates, these people that get other people to sign up for your product. What Do you have any other advice on building that community, maybe around kind of keeping that community together or incentivizing that community when they're there? Yeah, I mean, we at Branch took a little bit of a different approach in our community. We actually built... Um, a community of uh, that's not just a branch community, but a community of mobile growth advocates. So we found like, we built a community for people like us in the early days that we, we really struggled with mobile growth. So we wanted to build a community around people who have the same challenges and help them. So we built this mobile growth community. We do about a hundred to 150 events a year, depending on the year. And we, we, built co we built content for them. And it's been like really interesting for us. It's helped our business, but it also felt like we are giving back to people like us in the early days. So that has been interesting. I think the, the things I learned from building that community is that it, it's really, you have to think about what the community needs and put the community first and not really think too much about things like monetizing or selling your product and 
that has been something that has worked really well for us. Like all our events, we bring panels of speakers and they share information with the rest of the community. They will learn from each other. And that has worked incredibly well. We don't have a strong community of branch advocates. We actually feel that this, you know, we have a the our mobile growth community has a ton of branch advocates in it, but it also has people who don't use branch. So one of the interesting things that we've done that's I think a little bit different is not building a community that's just helps you as a brand, but actually building a community that's wider and helps you know mobile developers in general. And branch is more like a supporter and uh, someone who builds a community. I think it's helped a lot with positioning branch as a thought leader as well. But I think all of that came from like us first giving back to the rest of the community, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think it makes sense a lot. And I, I like it a lot too, this idea of building a larger community, giving back to kind of the like people, the like persona, the people like you or the people that are like the persona that's using your product. And and I feel like it gives a higher purpose too to the company. We're independent of branch in this case. You're helping people who are passionate about mobile growth. Yeah, exactly. And I think that has, you know, in the, in the, in the longer, I think it took a long time for us to see any kind of like benefit to branch from it. But in the long term, we saw a lot of benefit, like by building this community uh, and by supporting this community, people also learn about branch and what we do. But, you know, it's not at the forefront of the community. We do talk about branch at our events, but it's like 5% of the content and the rest is all community generated content about their problems, how they're growing and things like that. So it's been really interesting and, and, and different. And I think the size of the community has been a lot bigger. So if you go and you compare our partners or our competitors and the type of events that we do, this has actually been an event. Our events are usually much larger and a lot more of them were all around the world. And I think we've been able to do that because we focus on, on the broader community. Awesome. Awesome. So one thing I was curious about, do you see a difference between product managers working on the mobile space and maybe web-based tech startups? Are they a different type of person? Do they have a different skill set? I wouldn't say that it's a different skill set. I would say that mobile is a little bit different. And I think it's when you've, I mean, I felt the same. I came from a web background. I used to be a product manager for a web company and then I built the app and I designed the app and I basically acted as a product manager for our app in the early days. And I would say that it was actually really hard. The way people interact on mobile, the UX of a mobile app is very different than web. And I think I made a lot of mistakes in the early days. Uh, I don't think the skill sets are different. I think just it takes some time to learn mobile. Like I think uh, if you're an amazing product manager on the web and you come and you PM your first mobile experience, it might be harder at the beginning uh, unless you have an amazing UX designer that knows mobile really well. Uh, but I think if you don't and you're acting as a, you, you do some of the UX yourself and you work directly with developers, I think it can actually be complicated to, uh, to understand how apps and mobile work, the changes, the, the entire journey between web and app, I think it just takes a little bit of time. But uh, the inherent skill set, I don't think is, is different. Awesome, thank you. So in addition to the work you're doing you know, with Branch, you're also an investor at X Factor Ventures, right? So what are the um, product teams you're working with through there? 
I recently made an, inv an investment through X Factor in a company called Leo AR, and it's actually a mobile AR app and allows you to find really cool AR content and overlay it on top of you know, videos that you make. And they built a really great community of uh, content producer in the, producers in the AR space and allowing them to basically sell and promote their uh, content. And they're one of the best rated and most used AR apps right now. I'm very, very bullish on AR. I think it's going to be the next uh, frontier and it will change the way we interact with the world the same way the iPhone changed the way we interact with the world. I know all the big companies like Amazon, Facebook, Apple, they're all working on the next generation of glasses. Uh, but as they're preparing for that, they've put a lot of uh, emphasis in AR kits and allowing people to start creating their content now before the glasses come out. But I think as, you know, the first glasses and second, and, and I think in the next you know, five years, probably everyone will um, interact with the world around them using AR from buying furniture in their house, which people some already do, to trying things on uh, before they buy it in e-commerce, to having AR art in their houses, to at some point uh, even learning about people on the street who they're connected with by like seeing things next to them, uh, seeing information when they shop in supermarkets. I think it's going to be a really big revolution. So I wanted to invest in that. Awesome. So let's turn the attention of this podcast to you a little bit. What's your favorite product? Wow. Uh, my favorite product I am pretty into um, trying to measure myself <laughs> and trying to improve myself. So I wear a couple of connected devices. Obviously, I have my Apple Watch, which I really love. But I also uh, recently, because I travel a lot, I am probably on the road more than half of the time. One of the biggest problems I have in life is actually getting enough sleep and getting enough uh, REM sleep and deep sleep. So I bought this thing called an aura ring that tracks my sleep and my activity. And it's really helped change how much I sleep and how if I have a bad night, I really focus on having a good night the night after and things like that. Uh, they have a really great app that kind of shows me how I'm doing and things like that. So it's one of my favorite products, I would say right now. And then I think from a... Um, the other products that I use, I actually have an addiction to mobile games. So um, throughout you know, the past few years, I've played several games that I've been addicted to. And I would say at the time when I was addicted to the game, probably that game was my favorite product at that time. So what's your favorite game right now? I'm trying to wean off <laughs> and play uh, play a lot less. I think there's... There was this game um, called Stormbound that I played for a while. Uh, I'm not playing it right now. So right now I don't, I don't have one. I've, uh, I think four weeks ago I made, I'm trying to, be, to get clean. I'm like an addict. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I would take it quite as far as to describe that for myself, but I find whenever I quit one, inevitably something else kind of falls in and that becomes the game and it just kind of rotates through, you know, one or two that I love to play when I have any downtime. 
Yeah, exactly. So tell me a little bit about this Aura Ring a little bit. So the big use case for you is it, it helps you identify times where you have, haven't had good sleep and therefore focuses you on making sure that you recover from that or, or maybe focus on making sure you do have good sleep in the upcoming nights. Is that how you use it? Yeah, it basically shows me like it breaks up my sleep shows me how much I actually slept overnight because sometimes like I think I sleep eight hours but actually I don't because like it takes me a long time to get full asleep I wake up in the morning and I don't actually the fact that I'm in bed eight hours usually doesn't mean I sleep eight hours uh, but it also shows me how much deep sleep I get how much REM sleep I get and it helped me understand that at certain times I don't actually get enough REM sleep uh, and I started seeing patterns like I started realizing that if I work out and I'm active, I actually get a lot more deep sleep than I don't. So I started being more active. It helped me understand that if I go to bed super late, I don't get enough non-REM sleep. I get too much REM sleep. So I started like going to bed earlier. It also helps me understand that sometimes I didn't sleep enough and I really like the next day I like sometimes cancel like super early meetings just to make sure I get an extra hour of sleep. Uh, or go to bed earlier to get the next hour of sleep. So overall, I've just actually been a lot happier as a human being. And I think it's because like I get a lot more sleep because I'm, I think it helps me prioritize and understand my sleep better. Awesome. And you mentioned Apple Watch too. What's your favorite uses for the Apple Watch? I, my favorite use is actually competing with people. I've done it with someone on my team. I've done it with my co-founder where we compete for a month and, or for a week and see how many, who can close the most circles. And I think deep down, I'm a incredibly competitive human being. I think I, I, I told, uh, I was telling someone else, when I was a kid, I had an imaginary competitor. You know how people have imaginary friends. I had a competitor and they were always doing homework aside me and they were always better than me. <laughs> and I think just like the fact that the watch allows me to actually compete with my friends. It like really drives me to be more active. And that's probably one of my favorite, my favorite features from the watch. I love the imaginary competitor. That's uh, (laughs) an awesome story as a kid. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's kind of weird. Like, I don't think I like really realized this until I was thinking about it. And I, I was telling someone about it and they're like, you know, this is not normal. Most people don't like compete with someone in the imaginary one who can do the homework faster. That's still a great story. So one final question for you today, uh, three words to describe yourself. Creative, free spirit, and a dreamer. Love it, love those three words. Well, thank you. This has been a joy to speak with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.